0: Welcome to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceinthecity.org. Today is Friday, February 6th, 2009. I'm Alana Rangi. Let's flash back to the high school biology lesson on the cell. The blobular diagrams filled with organelles likely didn't strike you as that profound in 10th grade. But today, we're revisiting the cell. This time with Nobel laureate and Rockefeller University professor Gunter Blobel. Blobel's been studying the cell for more than 40 years and spoke at the Guggenheim's Works and Process series last week. Even if you're one of those people with the textbook cell diagram memorized. Trust me you'll be surprised at what you learn this week. Hey, Science of the City fans. I'm just checking to make sure you've got your tickets to the Science of Taste event here at the Academy next week. What's that you say? The Science of Taste that's right. Next Thursday, February 12th, join University of Florida smell and taste researcher Linda Bartoshuk and New York Times food columnist Harold McGee for a total exploration of how your taste system works. And Only at Science in the City, and only at our taste event, get your very own sample of the miracle berry, a fruit whose molecules bind to your taste buds and dramatically change the way things taste. Tickets are limited and selling fast, so get yours today online at scienceandthecity.org slash five senses.
1: My name is Gunter Blobel, I'm a professor at Rockefeller University.
0: Today. Bubbles at the Guggenheim Museum for their Works in Process series. He's been asked to give a lecture on biology to an audience of your average New Yorkers. In addition to spending more than 40 years researching cellular biology, he won the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine in 1999. But we'll get to that later.
1: What I'm trying to do in this one hour to transmit some of the excitement that we have as biologists, doing basic research in biologists. And what I have done in the last 40 years, I have looked at how cells work. They are basic mechanisms that are operative in plant cells, in bacteria, in animal cells, and in our cells. The universe is about 13 to 14 billion years old. Earth is about 5 billion years old and cells arose about 4.5 billion years ago. We don't know exactly how they arose, but we have some ideas and I speculated. The question really is, how did macromolecules evolve? Proteins, nucleic acids lipid molecules, the basic molecules that form a cell. And there was a brilliant experiment that was done in the 50s by a graduate student called Stanley in Uri's lab in Chicago, who took very primitive molecules, such as ammonia, CO2, and methane, and mixed them together, and put high pressure and high temperature In a tube, and voila, at the end, he analyzed what came out, amino acids, which are the building blocks of proteins, nucleotides, which are the building blocks of nucleic acids, and lipid molecules. So the very basic molecules of life can be generated spontaneously, and they're probably spontaneously generated and under some conditions in very primitive Earth. And so then, the big problem is how did these molecules get together and form a cell? Because the cell has, is an enclosed organism, an enclosed structure that has a certain number of molecules, trillions of molecules, more than the budget deficit, <laughs> uh, in a cell in a little container. How do you get them in there, and how do you have the right concoction? First of all, I I have to tell you that, of course, we now know that all cells come from pre-existing cells. There's no cell made de novo, and so the cells that we have nowadays come from those cells that developed four billion years ago. No new cells, as far as we know, were made in these last four billion years. They all came from those cells, and the cells divided and divided, and while they were dividing, evolved. First, they lived alone as single cells, and then after two or three billion years, they developed surface properties, which got them to aggregate and form multicellular organism, And this allowed a division of labor where certain cells could protect the organism against insult from the outside world. And there could be other division of labor up till man where we have a very large number of cells alone in the brain, thousands of different cell types which have certain functions.
0: Scientists know a lot about how a living cell works. Yet, to this day, nobody's been able to create a synthetic cell, or, in other words, a cell from scratch. This is largely because it's still unknown exactly how the first cells, more than four billion years ago, were formed. Blobel has some theories. What we
1: have speculated is macromolecular evolution really occurred on a surface of a bubble. A bubble you can easily make from lipid molecule, you can make it in in a test tube, you take lipid molecules, you sonicate them and they form a little bubble. You have all seen soap bubbles, but the soap bubble is a little different structure than the structure of this bubble, I will not go into details. And these bubbles allowed to capture molecules and to concentrate them on the surface of the bubble and then to evolve them into larger molecules by polymerization of amino acids of nucleotides and form more and more complex molecules. And eventually, uh, these bubbles could then invaginate invaginate, and form a closed structure that had two membranes. that could maybe open and close again. This then is the beginning in this hypothesis of a two-membrane cell. And then eventually the outer membrane was lost and we got a single membraned cell. And many bacteria nowadays, so-called gram-negative bacteria, actually do have two membranes and gram-positive bacteria have only one membrane. So these are cells that of course have evolved too, but we have residues left of these sort of cells, and by studying them, perhaps we can get more insight into how these cells develop. Now, how did the more complicated cells develop from these very primitive cells, which just had a membrane and had here indicating ribosomes and machines that make proteins, and here nucleic acid molecules that are attached to the membrane? And what we postulate is that the membrane invaginated and formed intracellular membranes in such a way that the nucleic acids, for instance, were all segregated into the nucleus by this membrane system called the nuclear envelope, and therefore segregating it from the rest of the cell, and that was important because nucleic acids, of course, are vulnerable to all sorts of damages, And it was important to segregate them, to keep them away from as many damaging insults as possible. And then there is another way of acquiring and complicating the situation, and that is the uptake of one cell by another cell. So mitochondria and chloroplasts, which are very important organelles, in the cell, we're actually taken up and have an origin in other bacteria. And so then you end up with two membranes, of course, the membrane of the host cell and the membrane of the bacteria. And you can call it, if you are fancy, xenoplasm, the foreign plasma. But in any case, so this is a short story of how cells could have evolved and uh, this hypothesis is actually taken quite seriously by people who think about it and of course it will have to be modified and will have to be added upon.
0: So technically, we're all, in a way, 4 billion years old. There are hundreds of different types of cells in the human body alone, from blood cells to skin cells to brain cells to heart muscle cells. We're going to look at a couple different kinds of cells, and the first two, we hope, should be fairly familiar.
1: You come, of course, from a cell of your mother and from a cell of your father. Here is the egg cell, huge egg cell, and here's the insignificantly looking sperm cell. It's just the head of the sperm cell that contains the DNA And then there is this very long tail because the sperm cell has to swim through the entire uterus into the tubes where it meets the egg cell and fertilizes the egg cell. And the egg cell, of course, contributes the mitochondria. The sperm cell does not. So the mitochondria we all have inherited from your mother and 10% of your brain mass is mitochondria. So some people claim that the intelligence we have inherited from our mother, no insult to our fathers. But uh, because the mitochondria play such an important role in in brain function. But anyway, so this uh, fusion process then creates the beginning of an organism. And then coming back to what I said in the beginning, so we all come from this one cell of a mother and a father. And so this, you can go back to these uh, original cells that arose, as I said, 4 billion years ago. You can look at it like in a relay race, where each organism gives the baton to the next generation, one cell to the next generation. So this happened, of course, many, many times. As we are all sitting in this room... We are all over 4 billion years old, representing 4 billion years of continuous cell division. Now, we are often not aware of it because we think of our father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and some of us think about, do a sort of research, you know, uh, our ancestors in the 15th century and 12th century and so on and so on, then it ebbs off, but we can be absolutely sure that we have this very, very long history, which we share with all organisms on this planet, with plants, with bacteria, and with animals. Now here you have, a little bit closer, look up uh, of this fusion here, you see this long tail of the sperm cell and you see how the sperm cell head has already fused with the egg membrane and the DNA is being uh, injected into the cytoplasm of the egg cell. Just to give you an idea what actually happens, here you have an ovary and an ovulation, the egg cell, is caught by the fimbria of the tubes. These are tubes, they're two tubes that are emanating from the uterus and the sperm cells have to go up all the way to the uterus, have to go into the tubes. And here, when an egg cell is caught by the fimbria of the tubes from an ovary, then the fertilization takes place and then the two nuclei form and then cell division starts. You have two cells, four cells, cells and so on and so on. So it takes about nine days before this small little embryo implants into the uterus. And these nine days are extremely important. What we have learned is that many systems that operate in this stage of development, being turned on and then turned off again, are being tested, so to speak. So factors that are later important for liver development or for kidney development, are being tested for other functions in this early stage of development. And if they don't function properly, if people cannot make a liver or a kidney or a brain, then the little bluster does not implant because it doesn't evolve uh, very much and is aborted so to speak, a woman doesn't even know that it is aborted because it's a little cell clump that you can only see in the microscope. It turns out that many of these little embryos and blastocysts have defects and therefore about 65 percent and don't therefore implant properly. So these are the very early stages of development of individual development. And you can see here in this little blastocyst there is It's an inner cell mass. So you have the fertilization by sperm and you can grow the blastocyst in a culture dish And you can then um, uh, take out the inner cell mass and culture them on a a Petri dish. And these are the so-called embryonic stem cells. And you have heard a great deal of discussions about embryonic stem cells because the embryonic stem cells have the fantastic potential. They are pluripotent or totipotent because they can give rise to any other cell in the body, to neurons, epithelial cells, hepatocytes, kidney cells, whatever, 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 but we don't know exactly how. What people have done is they have added a cocktail of growth factors, and what they see, they see heart muscle cells, they see epithelial cells, they see other cells, but they don't understand the mechanism, the stages of development of these cells, and they are probably very complex And so therefore, the potential of these cells is enormous if we would understand. Imagine people who have diabetes and have lost all their beta cells in the pancreas. If we could replenish the beta cells in the pancreas, they wouldn't need insulin anymore. Or people who have Parkinson's disease and have lost some neurons in the brain, we could grow these neurons and could replenish them. This is for the far distant, for the far future. I'm just mentioning. The potential, and this is why you hear so much discussion. But I give you also a little warning that we are far away from understanding it because it, many of the manipulations may also end up converting some of these cells into tumor cells. And if you then transplant these cells in a patient, you may end up with tumor. So we have to understand much, much better what the mechanisms of these things is. But since you read a great deal about stem cell I thought I would mention this.
0: All cells are subject to mutations, and while we generally associate mutations with negative side effects like cancer or disease, in some cases, mutations actually work to our advantage. Take, for instance, a mutation found in red blood cells.
1: This is a red cell looked by its scanning electron microscopy, where you look at the surface of a cell, and a red cell looks like a penny, uh, and it has an indentation. And the sickle cell has one single amino acid mutation in globin, which is the principal molecule of the sickle cell. And that globin molecules are soluble molecules in the cytoplasm. And yet, this single mutation causes a shape change of the erythrocyte in these sickle cells. And these sickle cells, when they have to go to the very tiny capillaries uh, they are much more fragile and they lives. And therefore, these people are anemic that have sickle cell anemia. But in evolution, to talk in evolution, this trait protected you from malaria because a malaria plasmodium could not enter, which is a which is a single cell, could not enter a sickle cell, so that people who had that trait had an advantage surviving to the productive age, reproducing, uh, not living perhaps, as in, uh, of course not living as long as people who had the normal cells, but still be able to reproduce, and being resistant to uh, malaria. And uh, there are such many mutations in uh, human cells that provide, uh, have the positive side of the coin, have an advantage, protect you against diseases. Uh, For instance, cystic fibrosis mutation protects you against cholera. So if you have a cystic fibrosic mutation, a mutation of one single amino acid in one chloride channel in the plasma membrane, uh, that the mutation protects you against cholera. So again, these people could uh, survive cholera epidemics much better than those people who didn't have the mutation. Well,
0: on the subject of blood, our white blood cells are responsible for fighting infection and bacteria that get into our bodies. A single white blood cell can locate, chase, and destroy multiple bacteria. And while white blood cells make up only about 1% of our blood, they're capable of keeping us, on the whole, pretty healthy.
1: Here I'm showing you another movie and that shows you a little bit about the eukaryotic world. This is a white blood cell that is dealing with four bacteria that you can see here. And the bacteria secrete something or have something on the surface that the white blood cell recognizes. So it is attracted to the bacteria, of course with the idea to eventually engulf the bacteria. The bacteria randomly moves around, but the white blood cell is always uh, trying, uh, voila, here it is, it got caught and now goes into the interior of the white blood cell and there it is meeting an acid shower and digestive enzymes and it is degraded. But there are bacteria, they are very smart too, they have involved too. So tubercle bacilli or uh, leprosy bacilli, they survive. In this environment of these acid baths and these digestive enzymes and organelles called the lysosomes, and actually thrive in it. So, that bacteria, of course, have evolved too in this eternal fight between these various cells. And so, therefore, we have challenges that are very big. Tuberculosis is an incredibly prevalent disease and we are running out of drugs and we have a tremendous problem in dealing with the tuberculosis challenge. And some of these reasons is because they are thriving within these neutrophils, these leukocytes.
0: So every new cell in our body comes from an old cell. Millions of our cells die every day and cell death is actually just as important as cell division or reproduction.
1: I've not talked much about cell division, which is a very complicated process, but cell division is always, development of an organism is also accompanied by programmed cell death. The fact that death of a cell is a genetically programmed mechanism has only been discovered 10, 15 years ago, and the Nobel Prize has been given for, for that work to Sidney Brenner and to Horwitz. And they have found a genetic program for that. And here I'm just showing you how cells die. You have, for instance, here this cell and this cell eventually are going to die. They're going to shrivel up. They are shriveling up, DNA is degraded, you can see how they shriveled up, and the bystander cells um, eat them up and digest all the material that is in these cells and use them again, the amino acids and the nucleotides in here. So this is programmed cell death that occurs as you are sitting here. Thousands and millions of your cells are actually being born as you sit here by cell division, and others are dying. So there is an equilibrium between cell birth and cell death. Cells that are damaged and have undergone certain mutations and very often also cancer cells uh, are dying. Uh, But some cancer cells have developed mutations that uh, they don't die that readily. And these mutations and these mechanisms of cell death, therefore, are very important also in cancer therapy in the future, because uh, the cancer cells are more resistant to cell death.
0: Lobel's own cellular research got him the Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine in 1999. He discovered that proteins produced within cells have intrinsic signals that govern their transport and localization in the cell. Basically, in order for proteins produced in a cell to perform their function, they've got to get to the right spot. Blobo wanted to know how they got there.
1: What we really have discovered is how the billion or so protein molecules that exist in a cell find their way to the proper address in the South. There are about 100 different addresses in the South different membranes, different compartments where proteins have to get in there. And proteins don't live very long. Some of them live only a few minutes, some of them live hours, some of them weeks. M- many of the cells uh, live for a very long time, for months or years, right? And so therefore, the proteins have to constantly be renewed, constantly being synthesized, and constantly being sent to the right address. If they are not sent to the right address, then they cannot function. It's like if you put a love letter to somebody who is not in love with you, it will have no reaction. If you send a protein to an address that there is no response to it, the protein will not function. And so what we discovered is that these proteins have little zip codes attached to them. And the zip codes tell the protein where to go. But the zip code, of course, is not enough. If you write a zip code on a letter, it's not enough to get the letter from here to Chicago. You need a machinery which reads the zip code. We discovered that machinery. You need all of the proteins that brings the protein then to the various compartments you have channels in the membranes which the the little zip code opens the channel and lets the protein slip across or when you have weaving membrane proteins in the protein opens the channel and then the channel opens laterally to keep the protein stuck in the membrane and then you you can stitch in the polypeptide chain with these little sequence elements and you can precisely specify how a protein is stitched into the membrane so that all proteins of a given, for instance, rhodopsin, which we can see, has the same orientation in the membrane. So that's what we discovered. We discovered the zip codes and the machineries, the channels, all of these sort of things that 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 distribute the proteins in the cell. And of course, if you have mutations in these zip codes or you have abnormalities, then you get numerous, numerous diseases, right? Um, so there are probably examples in each disease where something zip code or one of the things is not functioning properly.
0: For someone who's been researching cells for more than 40 years, blobell has got to be passionate. But I wanted to know what keeps them going.
1: What I love very much is that I discover things that people didn't know before. and. The joy in discovering things and putting things into context, not only what I discover, but what my fellow scientists discover, gives me a much better understanding of the world and what I am in the world and what the meaning of this whole thing is, my existence, as you learn more about it. And that is very helpful. Thanks for
0: listening. You love Science in the City podcast and appreciate new science content every week? We would love your support. There are two ways you can help us out. The first is to become a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit us online at scienceandthecity.org for more information. The second thing you can do is sponsor a Science in the City podcast. Get your name and advertising in an episode of our Science in the City podcast distributed to thousands of listeners every week. For more information, email Adrian Burke at a-b-u-r-k-e at n-y-a-s Want a quick and easy way to download our podcasts? Subscribe to them on iTunes. Just search Science in the City in your iTunes search bar. And, as always, if you have any questions or comments about a podcast you hear on Science in the City, we would love your feedback. You can send us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. Or you can leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. And don't forget to visit us online, www.scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.